I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Susan Campbell. She's a couples therapist who trains therapists and coaches, and she's the author of numerous books, including Getting Real and The Couple's Journey. And her new book is From Triggered to Tranquil, How Self-Compassion and Mindful Presence Can Transform Relationship Conflicts and Heal Childhood Wounds. So first off, I really, really loved this book. I began doing this kind of work many, many years ago, back when I was very young, and there wasn't much of a language for really understanding it well, at least not that I was aware of. I was just diving into it. And the way you articulate everything in this book is wonderful, and some of your newer innovations were wonderful, and I wish I had known about them much earlier in my life. That's so nice to hear, Tony Thank you. I have been working on this book in the back of my head for probably 30 years, even while I was writing other books. So, yeah, this is sort of the culmination of a long career of working with people very intimately. So let's begin by explaining exactly what you mean by triggers and the way that they can affect us. Okay. So people can become emotionally triggered, and I'll tell you what that looks like in a minute, but when they hear 
a tone of voice that they associate with disapproval or when they see a look on somebody's face that they associate with criticism or judgment or maybe somebody cuts you off in the middle of your conversation and you get this upset, angry feeling and maybe a story plays in your mind of my voice doesn't matter, this person is a terrible listener, so you can have a judgmental thought about the other or you can have a fear thought about yourself. And when you have that thought like my voice doesn't matter, that's actually showing that underneath this trigger reaction, and it's a nervous system reaction as as well as a kind of a mental story that plays, but it's almost always associated with some childhood unfinished business so that if your fear story that plays in your mind automatically is my voice doesn't matter, if you pause and check in and go deep with yourself, and that's what this book shows you how to do is inquire into the origins of this kind of automatic position that you take when you're hurt. If you inquire deeply, you'll find that there's probably some childhood unfinished business, some core need for feeling loved, valued, connected to others, feeling like you were worth listening to. Some of those basic childhood needs weren't fully met. And so your trigger reaction reflects your childhood unfinished business. And I should say, though, that everybody has the potential for getting triggered, and almost anybody who's in any kind of an important human relationship will get triggered, either from time to time or quite frequently, depending on how much unfinished business you have and how close you are to this current person. And I want to emphasize that getting triggered is completely normal. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with you or something wrong with the relationship. You just need to learn how to deal with triggers, which most people don't. But let me say something about why I say it's completely normal. Because every human has the same structure in their brain. They have in the middle brain, it's called the limbic area, and there's this thing called the amygdala, and brain scientists now know that this area acts like a survival alarm system, like radar that's always scanning for danger. So your brain, that part of your brain is wired up to react very quickly if you see anything that seems threatening. And this part of the brain was originally installed, let's say, or evolved in humans to protect our physical well-being because in early primitive times, humans really were under the threat of predators like lions and tigers and that sort of thing. But now we've evolved, but our brains are still kind of primitive in that one way. And now what we're scanning for is danger that's interpersonal. And what that really boils down to for most of us is the danger is a threat in the disconnection between us and somebody that's very important to us. So if you think there's some kind of disconnection, like disagreement, disapproval, criticism, judgment, if you perceive, and I'll put that word in quotes, 
if you imagine that that's coming at you from somebody important to you, you're probably going to get triggered, and your nervous system's going to go into some version of fight, flight, freeze, either trying to talk the other person out of their feelings, let's say, if, if you're in a bit of an argument, or get the other person to be quiet or agree with you, or maybe things are just so painful that you shut down like a deer in the headlights and you can't even know what you're feeling. And then some people go more into the fight mode. So, so that was freeze and flight that I just spoke about. And then there's the fight, which is arguing, pursuing, that sort of thing. So each of us have developed different kinds of, I'll call them protection mechanisms in our personality that instantly flare up if we sense danger in connection between ourselves and somebody else. And human beings, we may not think of ourselves as being like herd animals, but essentially we are herd animals. We're very socially dependent upon each other, and that's really the underlying basis for this susceptibility to being triggered by these right. things that you were just talking about. That's right, and it's even true that Let's say you're in a couple, and if your partner's upset by something, and maybe they're even just complaining about work, they're not even complaining about you, but your nervous system will start to get activated if your partner's nervous system is. And so we couples therapists have known this for a long time, that partners are wired together. But as you say, Tonio, humans are herd animals, and the state of the world and the climate crisis, humans are in kind of a pressure cooker now, and so many people are disturbed by this or that form of the meta-crisis, as it's being called now, all these intersecting problems, whether they be economic or climate or political. So we're all affected by this collective soup that's starting to heat up around us. So essentially we are living in a state of almost perpetual triggeredness. Yeah. Our and nervous system. Our, our nervous systems are on high alert. Yeah. We're, so if we're walking around just a little bit anxious, so usually people think I'm triggered as something obvious, something like a shock or a scream or anger or yelling or slamming doors, but... Triggering, as I did allude to a minute ago, can be more like shutting down or just trying to talk somebody out of where they're at if it's disagreeable to you. And what we're learning now is that low-level anxiety that a lot of us live with is kind of a perpetual triggered state. So these tools that are in my book, From Triggered to Tranquil, are not just for these immediate, shocking, big trigger reactions. It's also anytime you notice a kind of disequilibrium in your nervous system. So I think people need to get much more aware of what's going on in our own nervous systems and learn to intentionally calm ourselves and reassure ourselves that at least in this moment, I am safe. Like any of us, who are feeling anxious today as we're listening to this, in this moment, if you take a few slow, conscious breaths, 
and then just feel your body sensations, you're usually going to be able to feel a little more all there in the present moment. And even if something really unfortunate is going on in your life, when you bring more presence, more all-thereness to your current state, you're going to feel more internally powerful and also relaxed. Now, it's a matter of degrees, and we have to practice this over and over to really get good at it, but we can intentionally calm ourselves and help ourselves feel safe. Unless there's a tiger in the room, and then you want to run like hell, you know, but that that isn't usually the case. So usually we're better off with a calm nervous system. Mm -hmm. And some of these subtle triggered states can appear to be very normal to many of us to the point that, that we're not even at all conscious of being triggered or that there's anything to be concerned about because it's sort of become a normal state, a steady state. Yeah, so let's say a couple is in this rut where they just kind of pick at each other. This is so painful, but I think we've all, if we haven't been in a relationship like this, we've seen them where partners, whatever the partner says, you're kind of looking for the chink in it. You're looking for where to disagree, and that's one of those protective personality patterns that some people just develop over a lifetime where they're defended and watching for, well, uh, that's not quite right. That's not quite the way I would say it. And so they have to, like, speak about that and try to change the environment. So these are that's just one subtle example of how somebody can be going through life constantly triggered without even realizing it. And what I want to do, though, is not criticize you if that's your story and that's your protection pattern, but have you be more mindful of, oh, here I am doing this again. Let me pause. Let me really relax and then create a bigger, more curious space like a witnessing presence, this is something that a lot of people won't understand at first, but as you read through the book, you'll see how simply by consciously breathing and being curious about the feelings that are coming up in me right now, I can develop this bigger consciousness that can hold more diversity of feelings rather than having to live in a very narrow comfort zone. So as I open the space of my attention, it's sort of like I'm, I'm this big presence like the sky and the clouds move through the sky and then the storms move through the sky and then the sun comes up and the sun comes down. But it, that's just a metaphor for what that feels like. And when you can bring yourself into that witness presence state, then the practices that I teach have to do with inquiring into, okay, what does this feel like? Let me make a little more space for this painful, this upset feeling or this scared, frozen, dissociated type of feeling. Let me make a little more space for that. Let me inquire. And 
as we inquire, what that space becomes, it becomes like a big nurturing presence, almost like a good mother who says, come to mama with your hurts and your feelings. And, you know, the Beatles and, and the Catholic religion, I'm thinking this phrase, Mother Mary, comfort me. It's kind of like that, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. You're actually embodying that famous Beatles song line. I'm bringing this big nurturing presence to inquire and go, okay, where does it hurt, honey? What are you feeling? What memories from childhood might be coming up? And when you can be soft and tender for yourself, you actually move that old energy that's stuck inside of you like the pain of your parents fighting when you were little and you went in your room and hid because it was so scary. Those kind of memories, and so many of us have various painful childhood incidents, either remembered or repressed, but when you inquire deeply with a kind of self-acceptance and compassionate attitude, you're able to feel a little bit of what you weren't able to feel as a child. You're actually moving stuck energy that's been kind of motivating you to think you need to protect yourself from this this type of feeling ever coming up, that scared kid parents are fighting in the next room. That That memory will release, if you can gently feel some of the scaredness or the pain of that kid and hold it with tenderness, you're healing that old childhood lack of safety. You're giving yourself the safety that you didn't have then. You're feeling feelings that you weren't strong enough to feel then. See, your shutdown and and your repression was a very functional thing to do as a child because your nervous system wasn't developed enough or your personality wasn't developed enough or you were economically dependent on these people. So you couldn't fully just rest in your own power. You know, If you're under the age of 18 or something, you're not quite able yet to do this healing work. So this, this really is a book for adults. It's also a book for adults in how to handle triggers with your own children or with your friends and so forth. But this kind of work is aimed at people who are already grown up, although I suppose teenagers could use some of the practices, but it's really about fully developing your ability for self-care and self-regulation and your ability to fully take responsibility for whatever feelings come up in you and and know how to heal yourself. And you really can heal these old wounds. And when you do this work, you're actually connecting your higher brain, which is like the prefrontal cortex. You're, You're strengthening brain circuits that are between the higher brain that says you're okay and the amygdala that's going, danger, danger, I'm scared, i got to get out of here, or i got to get this other person out of here. So when you have a stronger connection between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala area, you can then reassure safety to yourself 
much more quickly. And that's what the optimally healthy brain development in a child does. It's like if you really had perfect parenting, those brain connections would already be strong. But so many of us have, let's call it, faulty wiring in the brain. And so this program, basically called the Five Steps to Trigger Work in my book, this program is designed to rewire your brain so that you can reassure safety to yourself much more quickly when there's any kind of a triggering event. And we're mostly talking about interpersonal triggers here, the kinds of things that people say and do that hurt or that are upsetting or that you think they shouldn't be doing. So that's what we're talking about, normal daily communication. Yeah, it's quite a challenge all of this stuff because it's so emotionally charged and it's anchored in our old childhood fear of those scary and painful experiences that we had as a child long before we were able to make any sense of it or able to protect ourselves from it. Yes, and so sometimes we need to sort of bring a wise adult, our own internal wise adult, back to back to our scary childhood memories and get this bigger perspective on it, which says, and the bigger perspective is reassuring, it says, just because you're hurting, just because you're upset, just because you seem to not be able to handle this type of situation well, it does not mean there's anything wrong with you. Your pain is understandable given what you went through. And so it's like just by holding space for yourself with tenderness, you're reassuring yourself that getting triggered doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And that's one of the main purposes here too. If we can learn if we can be more curious about our trigger reactions, understand where they probably come from or even if we don't have childhood memories, we can still work with these reactions just in terms of a general feeling or a general body sense that whoa, this kind of feels familiar. I don't have a memory about it, but you know, this feeling of dread when a certain type of person gets too close to me or raises their voice or something. We might just have this body feeling. And so we bring compassion and curiosity to that feeling. But the overall message here is that triggers are normal and you can learn how, not just to deal with them in a competent way, but how to actually use triggers for deeper self-knowledge and deeper intimacy, because once you and your partner have done this inner inquiry about your own triggers after a a fight, let's say, what I counsel couples to do is pause when you're triggered, and couples should have an agreement, and I teach how to have that agreement, how to create a pause agreement at the first sign of triggering. So you have this agreement to pause and to do some conscious breath practice together right there in the same room. You're both triggered, but you're not trying to talk or argue or make your point anymore. You're just being there. You're being humble. You're admitting, oh, yeah, my nervous system just got so activated that I feel unsafe. 
So you're both admitting that, and you're inquiring together then about, okay, where does that lack of safety originate? And then you're able to come back and have a conversation. Once you're really calm and once you've done some self-inquiry and brought some tenderness to yourself, then you're going to be much more tender with your partner. You're going to be able to, first of all, you're going to have your prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain back online, because you don't want to be talking to anybody when you're coming from your fight-flight-freeze reaction, which is the reptile brain. You want to be coming from the part of the brain that can empathize and collaborate and be generous with the other person, give them the benefit of the doubt. And that is the prefrontal cortex. And that is the part of the brain that automatically comes back online once your nervous system is calm. So in a couple-type situation, or even two friends or family members, you come back and then we do what's called repair. And repair is basically like making up after a fight, but it's not what people usually do the way I teach it, because most people, when they come back to talk, process is the word. Sometimes people, let's process that. It's not Process is not a bad word, but the way people do it is often endless conversation trying to be heard all over again rather than revealing. Here's the kind of repair that I've found works is revealing, okay, first of all, I'm sorry for any reaction. So that's the first thing. If I, if I yelled at you or cut you off or maybe even labeled you some pejorative label, I apologize for that. And then I say that was probably my old fear of abandonment coming up or my old fear of rejection or fear of not being important. So I help people find what the core fear is for their particular situation so that they can put it into language. That helps their partner have empathy. So if you say it was probably my old fear of abandonment coming up, when I screamed at you when you were walking out the door, you know, we can see how that would feel like abandonment. And so then you, in part of your repair, you might say, when you walked out the door, reminded me of all the times I was left alone to take care of my younger siblings and my parents just, you know, just went out and left us. So you're not trying to justify, you're just being revealing, you're saying, you know, it's my old wound, my old sensitivity. It's related to some of these old experiences. And so as you're speaking this, you're having empathy for yourself, but you're also speaking in a way that the other person doesn't feel blamed. So then they're more apt to have empathy for you too, if you can repair in this way. And then you might, at the end of the repair, Say, and I need your help feeling that I am loved or that I am important or that I matter or my needs matter. Some simple phrase that gets at what your particular set of needs are that you fear were not going to be met. See, that's what a trigger is. It's a fear that some old but essential 
core need, core developmental need, like the need to be loved and cherished and valued and wanted, that some basic need like that is, is not being met. That's what triggered you was the fear that that was absent. So you're revealing that I need, I need some help feeling important. And so that's basically the end of the repair. But in a couple relationship, I teach couples how to help each other feel safe and how to reassure that fear, like you are so important to me. And so I give scripts in the book, fill in the blanks, help people first analyze what are my core needs that sort of that sort of are under the surface and I'm always scanning for whether that need is going to be met. So for some people, they're actually afraid of being intruded upon. So they're scanning for somebody violating their boundaries or getting too close or telling them what to do. Other people are scanning for people going too far away from them. Abandonment, rejection, being ignored. So different people have different sets of core needs that were violated as a child or needs that were not met at least. And core feelings, like some people go more toward hurt, sadness, other people go more toward a certain type of fear. And so we, we get to know ourselves. In, in the first part of the book, I help people sit down and actually analyze a number of different triggering incidents from your recent adult relationships so that you can get the lay of the land and you can kind of practice going through these five steps of trigger work without any human in the room who might be threatening to you. So you're doing it all by yourself. And then if you're a couple, you share this kind of information with one another. So you both become partners in healing each other, helping each other heal those childhood wounds. And people really can help each other heal. And and that's the kind of society that I'm hoping to create here, where there are more of us who are aware of how to tend to our own nervous systems when we even get slightly anxious and how to be a nurturing presence for others when they're anxious. Mm-hmm. And it all begins with your first step of this five-step trigger work process of admitting and accepting within ourselves our own deep insecurities and fears and the triggers that arise from them. Yes, acceptance is one of the hardest steps. I wrote in 2015 with my co-author John Gray, we, we wrote a book about working with triggers that was just for couples. That book is called Five-Minute Relationship Repair. And that's a very good book, too. But what we missed in that book was the step of how hard it is to admit that you're triggerable or to really accept that there's nothing wrong with you. So I spent a lot more time in this book on the more subtle aspects of triggering and the resistance to even owning that we are. Mm-hmm. People tend toward shame. You know, exactly. we, have, yeah. we have shame in our, in our yeah. personalities. And if I'm not like perfect or if I don't look good and, and I'm always kind of in, in control of myself, I might feel shame. Antonio, I train coaches, people to do the kind of work that I do, like relationship therapists, and I will ask, 
my trainees, and we've already gone through a lot of this information, how to work with triggers and how they're normal, and I'll say, okay, you guys know all this information. How many still have shame come up when you see yourself getting triggered? And just about everyone in the group raises their hand. So I realize this is a big problem, even for very psychologically sophisticated people, that we just can't quite accept ourselves. And when we can't accept ourselves, there's going to be that need to blame. If you hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that type of thing. It's subtle blaming. I guess some people might not call it blaming, but it is. And as long as there's blaming in the space between you and somebody else, you're not going to hear each other because you're going to be putting up your protective walls because you're not creating a safe enough space. So that says something, too, about polarized subgroups in our world. The way we're talking to each other, you know, whether it's blue states or red states or people who want everybody to get vaccinated and people who want the freedom to not be vaccinated. I mean, whatever polarization we're talking about here, there's a lot of name-calling and put-downs and that sort of thing, and that really is just not going to work to help everybody see some kind of common solution here to these polarized issues. I mean, as a humanity, we're so far away from where we need to be to be able to create safety in another person that has a different opinion than myself. So these tools are very useful for that, too, for dialoguing along the lines that I'm talking about here, across differences and ideological differences or personal choice kind of differences. So if our humanity is going to learn to solve these complex problems together, we are going to have to get to this other level of consciousness where we can hold a bigger space around our own polarized feelings inside. Like, it's normal to be triggered. No, you're a schmuck if you get triggered. You know, we, we kind of have both of those voices inside ourselves. So when we can learn to do these practices inside ourselves and with our intimate people, we learn a process that we can bring into the world, into our daily dealings with anybody that we meet that might have a difference of opinion, for example. Mm-hmm. And that involves learning to recognize our own triggers, which is the second step in this process. And that's very, very, very tricky, considering that when we are triggered, we are essentially operating from our lizard brain where we don't really have any perspective or self-perspective. Yeah, and so that second step after acceptance is knowing your own unique trigger signature. I call it your trigger signature because it really is a kind of thing that, like your hand signature, kind of looks pretty similar each time you write your name. Your trigger signature looks pretty similar every time you get triggered. Or you might have a couple of different trigger signatures. But just by learning, well, what message tends to play in my mind when I'm triggered? 
Well, it starts out with a judgment for the other person, like, why didn't they? Like, why didn't they think to do things the way they know I want things done? So that's part of your trigger signature is some phrase like that in your own head. Why, they they could have done this. Oh, they should have, and then I wouldn't have reacted. So that can be one person's trigger signature. Another one can be completely going blank. I don't even think or feel anything. I just maybe have big wide eyes and my body you know, feels frozen where I am and I can't even speak. My throat feels tight. And that can be your trigger signature. And then there can be less intense trigger signatures that are just some low level of suspicion. Or some people go quick to anger. So those are the people it's easy to figure out your trigger signature. You know, you just immediately feel all this rush of adrenaline in your system, and especially in your arms and hands, and maybe you feel like you want to punch something. You probably don't do the punching, but that's your trigger signature. So each of us, it's so interesting. And as a psychologist, it's just such a wonderful opportunity I have to see all the different varieties of personalities. We're not all the same. And what makes me feel secure isn't necessarily what makes you feel secure. And what scares me isn't the same as what scares you. But we're all looking for safety, for emotional safety and acceptance of self and acceptance by others. Our basic needs aren't that different. So we do this trigger signature exercise, and it helps us know what are the early warning signs that tell me that I'm starting to get triggered so I can insert conscious practice in here, like the practice of pausing, even if you're not with another person. Learn to pause at the first sign that your trigger signature is happening, like at the first sign of being triggered. Mm -hmm. So that would be the third step in the piece, the five steps, is learning to pause and regulate your nervous system through breathing and through attention to various parts of your body that are holding tension. So that's that's the next step. And then inquiring into whatever just happened in your body and whatever just happened in your mind, like fearful th- thoughts, angry thoughts, you know, starting with a thought and just holding space for that thought. And then probably some feelings are going to come up around that thought and then some memories might come up around that thought so that would be the next step is the inner inquiry Mm -hmm. and pausing is essential in that process to calm our nervous system down so that we can actually do that inquiry to open up the space to to have a, a real open curiosity about what's going on rather than again just operating from our our lizard brain. Yeah, and pausing is the most important in the the whole process. Just the ability to insert some consciousness in what is pretty much an unconscious, I call it a runaway freight train. It's such a powerful force, this impulse to act in whatever automatic way you act to protect yourself. So we, we always want to remember to have empathy for this impulse to protect because it's an attempt to be safe. Even if you're yelling and screaming or punching, you're trying to be safe. So 
pausing is the only way that you can actually stop that runaway freight train. And it's not, don't expect yourself to be able to immediately just like read a book and do it. But there are practices while you're reading the book, you're actually going to learn how to pause. The book itself is kind of like a training program. Just reading the words, you're being guided through a process of, okay, now I'm remembering this. Now I'm doing this breathing to learn to slow down that runaway freight train. And you're, you're doing this all in the absence of the actual triggering event. You're remembering a recent or even long past triggering event, and you're going to practice on something that's not current and learn these skills. And then the book will take you to some childhood inventory, try to remember certain types of things that may have happened even, again, when you're not actually triggered in the moment. So all of these practices outside of the ring, you know, the boxing ring, we, we, we don't go in the boxing ring and you know, expect to have all the right moves at first. We, we practice outside the ring. Then when we are in the ring with somebody who maybe isn't totally safe, at least in that moment, you know how to bring safety to your nervous system. And by you bringing calmness and safety to your nervous system, it often helps the other person calm down, even if you don't have a pause agreement. Because again, people are wired up to be sensitive to one another and to what's going on inside each other. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how at the core of all of this, eventually we discover that there's this frightened child inside that we are trying to protect in a totally unconscious way. We're just in a knee-jerk way. We're just doing anything we possibly can to try and protect this terrified child, which is often just, in a sense, protecting itself from feeling what it was afraid of from the very beginning. Yeah, so as we learn about this frightened child, we see that some of the strategies that that child used are actually doing damage to our adult relationships. Let's say what that child learned was not to tell the truth, not to speak their mind, not to ask for what they want, because that was just going to be met with rejection, let's say, or some kind of punishment. So the child learns strategies to just be very closed in uh, what you would share. Well, that isn't going to lead to much intimacy or even deep friendships. So we bring safety to that child and actually even help that child find the words that they needed when they were three years old or the words they needed when they were eight or nine years old. And sometimes words will come when we're doing this inner inquiry, words that you wish you could have spoken at the time that would have felt more empowering, but realistically might not have worked in that unsafe environment. But just getting to complete the past by saying those words, by expressing your true wants, or marking a boundary with someone who violated you or who came into your space without your permission in some way. Learning how to do that 
way after the fact brings healing to that nervous system and it kind of teaches you how to create safety for yourself now in a in a different way so that you do not have to be afraid of asking for what you want let's say in a intimate relationship you know that sometimes you will get a no you know no i can't give you that right now no i'm not i'm not there where you are type of thing and that will perhaps push that old rejection button but you know that you have the tools to comfort that hurt feeling because we cannot go through life successfully always in fear of speaking up and and having the answer be no fear of rejection or we can't go through life successfully protecting against all possible painful outcomes there will be emotionally painful outcomes but now you know because you're big now not little anymore you know that emotional pain won't kill you. It will hurt, but there's a way to tend to your hurt that actually has you feeling more intimate with yourself, and when you do the repair, has you feeling more intimate with others, even though you just went through something that hurt. Maybe it hurt you both, but when you go through this process, you get more intimate with that hurting part of yourself and the hurting part of each other, and you bring that caring and compassion into it, and it it really shows you that, hey, you can tolerate a certain amount of emotional pain. I I call that the normal pains of adult relationships. People cannot expect to go through life not having any pain, but what you can expect is once you know the tools for comforting yourself when you're in pain, it's like being a good mother, a good parent to yourself. Once you have those tools in place, you don't always have to depend on other people treating you just perfectly so you won't get upset. Because, you know, those those of us who have a little bit of that, that, oh, uh, if they don't treat me this way, I'm going to be upset. When you have that in your personality, you don't get along that well in the world. And you often go around feeling hurt and misunderstood. And that can be healed. Just the very feeling of I'm being misunderstood or that hurt, just that very feeling can be the beginning of an inner inquiry that can lead you to a new relationship with yourself. And that's what we all need. We need to finish growing up. And we have a big reparenting job ahead of us here, just about every single one of us humans on the planet. And doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, or whether you come from the East, the Middle East, or Western countries, you got the same basic human needs. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things in this book was your repair statement process. People really need a short fill-in-the-blank statement to help them know how to make up after a fight so that they don't get back into defending themselves and that sort of thing because it's just too easy if you don't have a script. So I just tell people, follow this script, and it might feel too scripted for you. It might feel too limiting for you. But the reason it feels too limiting for you is you're used to letting yourself 
just run run off at the mouth or possibly clam up and not say some of the things that you should be saying. But the script kind of programs you to say just enough to open your heart to the other person and open their heart to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about your repair script because there are parts of it that were revelatory for me. And I just remember while I was reading it, just thinking, God, I wish I had this, you know, in yeah. in various relationships, in various situations where I, you know, with the best of intentions, I was trying to, to repair things. And yet all I was doing was making things worse. Yeah. So here's what the whole repair process would look like. Let's say, let's say with a couple, because that's kind of a known entity that is going to need repairs. There are going to be disagreements or just little hurt feelings in a couple relationship. But honestly, this can be broadened out to any relationship that has a recurrence to it. You probably wouldn't have a repair agreement because this is all done by a prior agreement that we're going to, if we see ourselves getting triggered, we're going to aim at least. We won't always succeed, but we're going to aim to pause, do some self-calming, do some self-inquiry and self-compassion practice, and then come back and repair. So we have this agreement. And we say we're going to give ourselves a little time after the triggering incident to do those other practices, and then somebody has to initiate the repair. Is it time for our repair? Or I'd like to do our repair now. Is this a good time? So that's the first thing is making sure both people are ready, that they're both calm. And then when you start sitting down face-to-face for your repair, Face-to-face is always best. I know so many relationships are done on text and email and stuff now. If you have to do it that way, you know, non-face-to-face, well, okay. But best to be in the same room for such an important interaction. So both people then should take a few slow, conscious breaths, even at the beginning of the repair. Because, you know, you think you're ready, but now that you're sitting there face-to-face... Oh, and you also, something I forgot, Tonio, is before you sit down for your repair, you have this repair script already filled out. You've spent some time with yourself, and the script goes something like this. I'm sorry that I da-da-da, whatever that, fill in the blank. And I'm sorry is not always necessary because sometimes the other person didn't even know you were triggered. You're apologizing more for having a judgmental thought or for withdrawing your energy from the relationship out of maybe fear of asking for what you want or something like that. So sometimes you're repairing something that's a unilateral repair. So I talk about that in the book too. But let's assume right now that we're doing a mutual repair. Both people were obviously triggered. They both needed to calm down and separate for a little bit and they're coming back and saying is this a good time so they agree that they're both ready and they've filled out the script and so the script goes sometimes it'll start with I'm sorry I called you a cold fish 
that was probably my old fear. Oh, oh and, then you, and you say, I was triggered. You know, I'm sorry, da-da-da. I was triggered. Now, you're not making an excuse for why you did that. You're acknowledging that you were not in your right mind when you said that. I mean, basically, the understanding is when you're triggered, you're coming from that scared, cornered animal place in yourself. You're not coming from the loving part of your brain. And we're accepting that people come and go from the prefrontal cortex. They're not always able to be there. And so by saying, I was triggered, there's an understanding that, you didn't really mean it, that that wasn't your deepest truth. But it's good to say that. So your next step is, that, you know, I was triggered. Either you didn't deserve that or I didn't mean that or I would like to take that back. You really want to emphasize that you're no longer in that frame of mind anymore where you think that, that that was a temporary aberration based on being triggered. So you say, I sorry, I did that, I was triggered. Then you go, that was probably my old fear of, let's say, rejection. You know, fill in the blank there. And I, I give people a, a pretty good list of what are the core fears that humans might have activated. And rejection, abandonment, being not valued, my voice not being heard, not being good enough. These are the typical core fears, but there are some others. There's fear of being trapped, fear of being used, fear of being misunderstood, fear of being blamed, fear of being seen as bad or wrong. So our listeners can kind of go through the list with us now. We might have more than one of those fears that gets activated from time to time. So you name what the fear was, fear of rejection. So you're owning, the biggest thing is, I'm owning responsibility for my reaction and am in no way blaming you. And I'm saying, you know, this is something I've carried in me for a long time. By saying it was my old fear of rejection, I'm letting them know that you didn't install this fear in me. I had this fear installed, you know, when I was six years old, that type of thing. Then you might, there's a couple optional phrases in here, like, when I saw you walking away, it brought back old memories of like when the kids, if I was in school, in the playground, when the kids would try to ditch me. You know, kids do that to each other sometimes. You know, they would run away from me, try to hide from me, try to not include me. It brought all that back up. And so just going through filling out your repair statement I encourage people to feel a little tenderness. Like when I just said ditching, you know, I remembered how that felt not so much to me but to a, a couple of little 10-year-old girlfriends of mine who used to get ditched a lot by peers. How painful that is. So you're like almost like giving yourself a hug as you're going through this repair statement, you know, brought back old memories. You know, you're not plugging for sympathy, but you're just trying to soften the conversation. So you might refer to an old memory. Then, if I had it to do over, or I wish I could take it back, I would tell you that I need your help feeling accepted. 
or feeling wanted probably would be, if you have a fear of rejection, you probably want to feel wanted or some version of that. So, again, I give people fill in the blank and then some multiple choices of what word fits for you to put into that blank. And then you put a period on the end and you just sit there with your sort of raw, vulnerable feelings being visible to all. And that's a repair. Rather than justifying why you did something, inquiring and grilling and quizzing the other person about why they did what they did, you're not going back over the incident. You're simply stating what was underneath your reaction and kind of like asking for forgiveness and just showing your vulnerability. And as I said, the final piece in a couple relationship is for the partner to give you that reassurance. And it's usually pretty easy for a partner to say, you are so very important to me, or I I do value you, or you are wanted. Gee, I definitely want you. I want you in my life, and I want to spend time with you more than you know. You just reassure using whatever words come to you, but again, it's one sentence. And couples understand that doing this repair process together repeatedly, it deepens your humility and your ability to accept that you're not like perfect in in some abstract way that you think you should be perfect and that you're lovable anyway. So that's the that's the repair. And also you talk about debriefing after the repair process and what to look for in a debriefing. Yeah, debriefings are good for a lot of things. You know, after something, like after a party, I know my partner and I sometimes after a party or after some group that we've both been in, we'll, we'll say, well, how did you feel about that? How did you think that went? What came up for you? So that's what debriefing is. It's, it's a conversation after the repair. Did that feel satisfying to both of us? What was missing? And is there more that I needed to say that I didn't say? And sometimes the person will say, yes, one more thing. I need reassurance that you're no longer blaming me for your reaction. And that's a big one. So be sure to add that in if you need that as part of your repair. So debriefing is simply, hey, did that work for us or do we need a do-over of our repair? That type of thing. Mm -hmm. And you also say that it's very common to get triggered again even during a repair process. Right. Thanks for mentioning that. It is because people do color outside the lines. They don't follow the script as much as they intend to. And even if they've written it out and are reading it to the partner, they'll slip in some little zinger that they they didn't even know was coming out of their mouth. And then they'll trigger their partner and you'll have to pause and really, really pause and take some time again to feel your nervous system calming and bring some more compassion to yourself and that it's hard when you when you think you're almost geez we're almost repairing we're almost done and now my partner got triggered again oh damn we just have to accept that triggers happen whenever they happen and we can't control those but we can take charge of what we do right after we get triggered and all of this this whole 
process that we just went through can be done with all of our relationships, not just with our intimate partners. That's right. And the second half of the book, I talk about how to use these practices with your kids, with your friends, in groups, because people get triggered in groups. When you're leading a group or just when you're reading the news or listening to TV news, you're getting triggered. So the second half of the book is all these different applications of these tools in various kinds of relationships. And you say in the book that the aim is to actually include everything that we encounter within ourselves and not to get rid of any of those quote-unquote dysfunctional parts of ourselves or the things that trigger us or the fears inside of us or to try to do that with another person. Yeah, the whole process is integrating your lost parts into your personality so that you're more whole. And some of these lost parts may seem to be nuisance parts, like an angry part or a cynical part or something. I call those your protections. You've put those parts in place to help yourself feel safe. But if we integrate those parts, it's not like the angry part's going to take over your whole personality, but the angry part maybe needs to be felt and brought into the fold, so to speak, brought into your wholeness because anger is what helps you say no to things that really aren't working for you, like marking your boundaries and saying, no, no, I don't want to do that. So all these parts that were only for protection and were overused when you get triggered, if they're integrated, if they're under the influence of the rest of your wholeness, they don't run the show. So your protection parts don't run the show anymore, but they're more available to you when needed. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the existential crises and challenges that we're facing in our world. Could you talk about trigger work in relation to those circumstances and also how to work with that to create a greater sense of wholeness in such a challenging and divided world? Yeah. The point of the book is anything that upsets you can be the beginning point of an inner inquiry where you get to know yourself more deeply and accept yourself. So I give an example in the book about this woman who got very triggered during the, the last presidential election when she would hear people who had voted differently from one another, like red states versus blue states, when she would hear people on both sides throwing around blaming and pejorative and put down kinds of statements toward each other. Just being witness to that kind of conflict would trigger her. And she might be in a room with some neighbors you know, at a garden party or something, and she's triggered and she gets tongue-tied and frozen. So when she worked with the practices in the book, she connected with some old memories of her childhood. She grew up Mexican-American in a mostly Anglo community, and being Mexican in that environment, she was on the receiving end of pejorative labels and put-downs 
when she was a kid, and it was incredibly painful for her. So when she did that inner compassion work with herself, you know, based on this kind of political argument that was all around her, she did enough work to bring real empowerment to this part of her that it used to feel stuck and tongue-tied, but she found a voice in there. She found words and feelings that she hadn't really accessed before because she was so frozen. And after she did a few rounds of this inner inquiry, she was able to come back and be in those situations with her friends and neighbors who were still bad-mouthing each other and stand up for herself and say, you know, could we pause here? This kind of conversation really bothers me, throwing labels around. I would rather know what you're really feeling right now and what really is bothering you about this or what you really want here instead of just these labels. So she was able to deepen the conversation that she was in and actually be kind of a leader in her community in that way. That's a simple example, but you become more self-empowered when you use whatever is going on around you that has you frozen or wanting to attack somebody. You become a more powerful force for your true motivations once you get more integrated in how you're holding your reactions and how you're holding other people's reactions. And you also talk about, at the end of the book, about our relationship with the world itself and considering the state of the world. How does practicing this kind of trigger work help us to face these existential challenges? Yes. Here's what I've discovered. When we learn how to inquire into what's going on inside of us and bring our lost parts up to consciousness, those repressed parts, the rejected parts of ourselves, I believe we're actually embodying a process that I call whole-making. And our world today is not very whole. It's very fragmented. It's chaotic. It's not safe. It's not a safe place for people. We don't even know, like, who's really in charge here? Because there's so much conflict around us. So this whole making process that we learn by doing our inner work actually develops us into the kind of people who can work in an outer way with this kind of chaotic social environment that we're in, can actually sort through what are the things that are hijacking people's amygdalas. That's, that's the new phrase, or limbic hijacking. What are the scary things that leaders are saying and doing or that our whole world that we don't have control over is going through so it's not just people, it's forces that just create chaos in our world. How do we work with these disparate energies in the world? We have a template now. So we're actually evolving ourselves as humans to come more from that bigger witnessing place 
that operates for the good of the whole. And we need more humans who have evolved themselves to that place in themselves so that they can take action from that place in relationship to whatever community or world situation they find themselves in. So we're talking about evolving to a higher level of consciousness so that we can think both and 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 not either or. It's like you can't solve the problem at the level of the problem, and the level of the problem is kind of like polarized forces, you know, you're wrong, no, you're wrong, no, do it our way. If we get above the level of the problem, and this might be hard for some of our listeners to take in right now, but if you get above the level of the problem, you listen more deeply to each side. And in many cases, if you go deep enough, there is either wisdom in both sides or there's some fears in one side or the other that have not been addressed and that cannot be addressed. Your fears that keep people polarized cannot be addressed until the atmosphere is safer. And so how do we make the world safe for differences? That's that's also what this book is about. Mm-hmm. And also finding ways to make the source of our fears the source of our power. Yeah, very good. That's right. When you know where those fears are coming from and you can befriend that fear, like like the Mexican-American woman who was afraid of pejorative labels and being blamed and put down. Once she fully integrated that fear and that pain into her personality, it could be used for empathy, but it could also be used for standing up against injustice. And you mentioned empathy, where once we become familiar with our own emotional triggers, we can then start to recognize triggers in other people. Yes. And if we have compassion for our own emotional triggers, that will spread to greater acceptance of others as they are. But that doesn't mean they have to stay as they are by creating a safer world for them or a safer space in our relationship with them, helping them feel safer. They can find more of their true potential and not stay stuck in that cornered animal place inside themselves. We can all be a healing force once we've done this inner healing because we understand the process of healing. And it's really not rejecting any part of society or rejecting any part of ourselves, but getting to know it and bringing it into our wholeness. Mm-hmm. And just as co-triggering happens amongst people resonating with each other, when we calm our nervous systems down, we also have a co-regulating effect on each other. Beautiful. Absolutely, Tonya. I love that. So then this work that we're talking about, which begins within ourselves, is actually very, very important for the outer work that needs to be done in the world. It starts with ourselves, because that's the place that we actually do have some control. And it's sort of miraculously, once we have more self-control, we have less need to control the environment in ways that are unrealistic, 
like getting somebody to shut up who we disagree with. You know, that kind of control is pretty unrealistic. But what we realize is we can learn to relate. I make the distinction between relating and controlling. We can relate authentically to our environment and create more safety and then creating safety for the other. They're going to be more authentic with us. And controlling the other doesn't work, but relating, that's how we have a positive influence on one another, by listening, by authentic self-expression, and by really being curious about the other person's world. Yeah, and only by learning to calm our nervous systems down do we open up ourselves to recognizing the lessons of the conflict that arises out of our triggered responses to the world around us and to each other and how it creates a kind of vicious cycle that can spiral out of control or just continue on endlessly if we don't pause or don't learn how to do that. Everybody needs a good pause practice. And I outline several different ways in the book. And some people it's more useful to take a walk in nature or do some kind of movement practice. But everyone needs a self-calming practice. You are responsible for the state of your nervous system, and you can take charge of it. Nobody else is going to be able to do that for you. I mean, you can ask for hugs and stuff, which we should be doing that more. We should be asking for our needs to get met and more hugs and more reassurance. That would be nice, too, if we felt safe enough to do that. But basically, when when the world is not doing it for you, know that you can do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could end by talking about creating pause agreements within our relationships. Every relationship needs some kind of a pause agreement. And I even do that when I lead a group. I'll say, if anybody starts to get triggered and I explain what that looks like, raise a pen or raise some other little object we decide on, you know, if I'm on a Zoom call. And so every group that ever gets together, it would be really nice if group leaders or if you're having a family meeting with your family, and particularly if you know it's might get heated, we say, okay, if anybody starts to feel unsafe or do one of your trigger signature things, whether it's shutting down or talking fast or whatever your trigger evidence is that you're triggered, somebody will say the word pause and we'll all just take five slow conscious breaths. And, you know, just doing five slow conscious breaths will often bring everybody back to calmness. It's just people don't do it. And they go, oh, I don't have time, or that's going to interrupt us, or that's, no, we just don't do that. I don't want to say pause because people will wonder why I said it. If you have agreements to do this, you're bringing safety in right away because everybody knows that as soon as they start to feel unsafe, Probably others are starting to feel it, too. And if I say pause, it's actually a gift to the rest of us or my partner. So we need to we need to get a lot better. And sometimes you don't have a pause agreement, so you might just 
be with some stranger or with a new group at work, and you might have to just say, I need to pause for a moment just to connect with myself. Give me a moment. Just a little phrase like that can help you do your own unilateral pause, even if you don't have an agreement. But it's best for people who relate often to actually have a pause agreement. And if all else fails, you can say, I need to take a bathroom break. (laughs) Exactly. Very good. And sometimes that's the best way, and that's pretty socially acceptable. I've done it myself. Yeah, it's interesting. Bathrooms can often be the only safe room in a place. Yeah, yeah. It's good. And then once you're safely in the bathroom, you can do your inquiry or you can talk to yourself in the bathroom mirror or however you want to do it. I've I've done all of that myself. Yeah, because life seems to be about learning how to be with emotional pain and interpersonal discomfort and challenges and the inconvenient truths of life and the world around us. And that's... One of the purposes of my book is to help humanity get better at dealing with inconvenient truths so we can see the handwriting on the wall and not have to wait for a crisis, which humans are kind of known to do is, you know, we don't don't act until there's a crisis. And I would like to help change that. And also when we are in crisis mode and we're acting out of fear, we're not in our right mind and therefore we're not able to make the necessary changes or think clearly about what's needed. Absolutely. So if we know that and really believe that, that you need to be calm in order to make good decisions, I hope that will motivate people. Yes. And I love this book. I love the way you really made it a full circle. You brought it all back around to integrating it back into the world, our our individual inner work into the world and all of our relationships, leaving nothing out. Yeah, thank you. You really got it. I can tell by what you're saying now. You really got my intent in writing this book, and I hope it will be something that helps everyone heal and create more safety and love in their world. And you really address all kinds of relationships so everybody can find something to work with at any point in their life. Yep. Things that trigger us are all around us, so I tried to bring that out in the book. You don't have to be in an intimate relationship in order to do this inner work. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm very grateful for your insights and what I gained out of this book. Ah, thanks. My guest has been Susan Campbell. She's a couples therapist who trains therapists and coaches, and she's the author of numerous books, including Getting Real and The Couple's Journey, and her new book that we've been talking about is From Triggered to Tranquil, How Self-Compassion and Mindful Presence Can Transform Relationship Conflicts and Heal Childhood Wounds. Susan, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Tonio. It's been a pleasure talking with you also. 
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 